ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I'd like to begin the podcast today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and region. Studio 19 is once again back at IPA ACT's headquarters in the shadows of Parliament House here in the suburb of Barton on what it has to be said is an absolutely sparkling winter's day here in the nation's capital. Today on Work With Purpose, we talk integrity and specifically integrity in the Australian public service. Even at a time when the reputation of the APS is at an all-time high, given the competent and efficient management of the COVID-19 health crisis, there is always a risk that things can go wrong, that public servants can do the wrong thing and act without integrity. Our guests today have responsibility for ensuring that the APS meets the highest possible ethical and professional standards, and that the interests of the Australian citizens are preserved at all times. Angeline Falk is the Information Commissioner and Privacy Commissioner, and her roles take in a number of functions across privacy, freedom of information, and government information management. Over the past decade, Angeline has worked extensively with Australian government agencies, across the private sector and internationally addressing regulatory challenges and both the opportunities and challenges that are presented by rapidly evolving technology and potential uses of data. She joins Studio 19 from her office in Sydney. Angeline, welcome to Work With Purpose. Grant Hare is the Auditor General of Australia, a position which is an independent officer of the Parliament with responsibility for auditing Commonwealth entities and reporting to the Australian Parliament. Prior to his current position, Grant was Auditor General in New South Wales and prior to that served as a senior public servant in both the federal and Victorian governments. Grant, welcome to you. Uh, And last, but by no means least, is Michael Manthorpe. Michael is the Commonwealth Ombudsman, an independent officer who safeguards the community in its dealings with the Australian government. Michael has had a long and distinguished career in the Australian public service, serving in multiple senior roles in the Departments of Education, Employment and Workplace Relations and the Department of Immigration and Border Protection. Michael, welcome to you. Thank you, David. Angeline, I might, if if I could, start with you because one of the features of the changing circumstance brought about by COVID-19 has been the acceleration in the use and adoption of digital technology. What challenges has that raised for you, given your responsibilities for both privacy and data? Well, thank you very much, David. Uh, COVID-19 has certainly seen uh, the increased utilisation of both technology and personal information. Uh, And my office has been very focused on facilitating and enabling both government and business to prevent and manage COVID-19 and at the same time do that in a way that is protecting personal information 
and also to achieve accountability and transparency in reaching those public health goals. And what we've seen very clearly during this time is the community's expectations that both of those uh, aspects are embedded in government's responses to the pandemic. So we've emphasised uh, the criticality um, of drawing on existing processes that are already in place when responding at pace. Uh, for instance, with the COVID Safe app, uh, there was a need to ensure that a privacy impact assessment was undertaken uh, and that there was uh, the ability to assess the privacy risks and to mitigate them. Uh, but my office has been engaging right across, if you like, uh, the information life cycle of both the pandemic and COVID-19. So we've been assisting workplaces to understand how to properly handle personal information during this time and including health information. And then also addressing issues like use of technologies, including the ones that we're using today uh, and how to best uh, balance security and confidentiality whilst also taking a, a pragmatic approach to achieving government's goals. So how well have we done? Have, have we managed privacy appropriately? I think we've got uh, a lot to be very proud of during this time uh, and that we will be able to look back at this time um, as a period in our development uh, when there was a real coming together, I think, um, of governments, of administrators, uh, of regulators and of the community to achieve a common purpose in terms of public health outcomes. Uh, I think the level of transparency that we saw from our chief medical officers and others during this time, giving really um, uh, incredibly, I think, detailed information to the community uh, in real time um, has created uh, a sense of engagement with the community, uh, a notion of transparency, uh, and that has, I think, played out in the way in which uh, personal information uh, has been handled during this. And one example is with the COVID Safe App development and the privacy impact assessment that was undertaken, that government did make a decision to uh, publish that in full. Uh, and that, again, gave the ability to have both criticism and engagement of the broader community. Hmm. Okay, and we'll come back to, got plenty more questions to come back to you. But Grant, if I might sort of throw the same question to you, how has the COVID-19 pandemic uh, impacted on the work of, the, of, of your team at, at the Auditor General's? Um, it's in, impacted upon the processes by which we undertake our work, but uh, not really on the work itself. Our job is to undertake audit activities across the public sector to provide transparency and accountability for government's actions and that doesn't change um, because of COVID-19 or the government's response to it. The, the things that do change are the how we undertake the risk assessments in doing our work. Um, the audit work we undertake is all based upon uh, risk assessment of where audit activity would add the most value and clearly with the, with the government's response and the speed of the government's response, that's had a, an impact on the risk environment in which government 
operates, um, not simply with the, with respect to the uh, increased risk in developing and implementing programs, uh, new programs, COVID response programs quickly, but also with respect to the diversion of resources from business as usual activities into those changes, the risk environment across government. So the, the key impact on us has been reassessing where we should focus our work. Um, and how did you make those decisions as to where you would put your, your effort? Um, we, we looked at the, the initiatives of what government has undertaken and what we've developed is a, a work program to look at the responses to COVID-19 by the government. Um, we've commenced four audits already into government response activities, developed a strategy which goes from looking at the how effectively risk was managed in the initial uh, response through to, um, in the medium term, built, looking at building up a program to look at the, the effectiveness of those programs and the overall planning for them going forward. So it's the impact on us has been to realign some of our work to those areas of government activity which have been directly COVID-19 related and also reassessing within agencies which have changed their priorities how they've done that and looking at where we can develop our program in that respect. We had a conversation last week with um, Caroline Edwards, the Acting Secretary at the Department of Health, and she made the the point about the, the relaxation of procurement rules mm-hmm. and also the, this movement to more principles-based decision-making as opposed to, you know, solids following structured processes. Um, how involved are, have, have you been in, in working to understand what that relaxation looks like and how it can be still managed inside a, a risk profile that's acceptable to, to the government in, in a crisis, that's got to be said? Um, we're the auditors of the government, <laughs> um, not the people who set the framework. So our role is to, to look at how, they, how those decisions are taken the reasonableness of the decisions and whether they are taken within the accountability framework that government operates in. So you can relax procurement rules, but you're still required to operate under the principles of the PGPA Act, which requires accountable authorities to utilise resources appropriately. Um, so the rules that you can relax are ones about the level of competition that you're involved in, but it doesn't allow you to... Uh, spend resources without due regard to appropriate use. So sure. the frameworks are slightly different, um, but they're not un- they're not unique. We've audited in areas where that's happened in the past. Okay. All right. Um, again, plenty more questions to come back to you. But to Michael, um, as the ombudsman, you are really the voice of, of the citizen. You represent the citizen. How has uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and the government's response been for the citizen, you know, sitting in, from your position as, as ombudsman? Well, it's been a fascinating period for everyone uh, in, well, I venture to say the entire world. Uh, none of us have seen anything like this in our lifetimes. And uh, as the ombudsman, well, you don't have an ombudsman if you don't have complaints. Uh, and sure enough, we get complaints from the citizenry about any number of issues across the entirety uh, of Australian government administration, particularly in those service delivery, uh, big service delivery areas. Um, And I should add, we're also the ACT Ombudsman, so we get uh, complaints in that space as well. In terms of COVID-19, we've been particularly looking out for, are there 
complaint types or topics that particularly go to issues associated with COVID-19? And is there anything sensible or useful that we can do about those? A um, couple of examples. Um, not surprisingly, we got a number of complaints, not a huge number, I should say, given the numbers of people involved, uh, but we got a number of complaints uh, about delays at Services Australia associated with accessing uh, the job uh, seeker payment. Um, now, uh, the CEO of Services Australia didn't particularly and doesn't particularly need uh, the Ombudsman to come in with a big, heavy-handed investigation uh, to find out why there's a big queue at Centrelink at a moment like that. They know there's a big queue and they know why and they were uh, seeking and endeavouring to do something about it. Uh, so we certainly have conversations with Services Australia about that, um, but we also seek to be understanding of the pressures that they're under in a, in a moment uh, like that. Um, that said, looking forward, uh, you can also anticipate, it, and it seems to be happening now, and uh, I, I hasten to add I'm not privy to all of the intricate gov government deliberations about what policy and program interventions lie ahead, uh, but one can anticipate that there will be uh, further uh, programs, projects, uh, service delivery interventions made by governments in the period ahead to help with uh, supporting jobs and, and so forth, um, where there could be... Um, uh, unintended consequences associated with design and delivery. One of the functions that I fulfil um, is uh, under the title the Vet Student Loan Ombudsman, where years after the Vet Fee Help program was wrapped up, a program that uh, Grant's office audited a few years ago, years after that program was wrapped up, we are still fielding complaints from people who have been left with debts to the Commonwealth as a result of the way in which that program ran. Uh, and so we are on the lookout for uh, other program interventions that might happen now uh, that might have similar impacts on the citizenry going forward. So apart from complaints around delays of, of payments, what were the other big complaints that you got through the COVID period or the, the health crisis? You know, we're obviously... Got a long way to run on this yet to go, but so far, what else What else were people not happy about? Um, well, we get some complaints uh, in our role as the postal ombudsman about how long it takes uh, for uh, parcels to arrive. Again, I'd emphasise these aren't in huge volumes, given the huge volumes of parcel activity that Australia Post has been involved in. Uh, we've had some complaints about uh, specific issues in the private health insurance space. We've had some complaints in the immigration and visa space. Um, uh, right across uh, the areas where government is engaging with the population to deliver uh, services, and in some cases uh, new and very different <laughs> services to what have been uh, delivered before, uh, we have had complaints. Although I would emphasise that we haven't had volumes that suggest that there has been uh, some kind of monumental yeah, catastrophic problem. catastrophic failure no, or anything like not that. Not at this so, point. Let's hope it stays that But way. it has been good, though. You know, from your point of view as the ombudsman, you would say, in terms of measuring through complaint, that the performance has been pretty good. Um, overall, I would say that. Um, but uh, one never, one should never get complacent or uh, too smug about all this. Um, there is still a long way for a lot of interventions to run. Um, I think one thing that uh, has been sensible is the idea of trying to deliver programs to date through existing mechanisms and machinery. Uh, and I think uh, uh, that that's made sense, um, but there's, uh, there's still a long way to run and we'll be continuing to watch it.
Okay. One of the uh, features of the Work With Purpose podcast are our questions that we receive from the future leaders of IPA. And the first question I'll take today is from Holly Noble at the Department of Finance. And Grant, I think it's heading your way. Uh, One of the common frustrations, Holly asks, in auditing and oversight is that not enough value is placed on preventative action. When there are so many competing priorities, it's much harder to dedicate the time to action that represents an intangible benefit. Instead, we look to the burning platform first. What preventative action can future leaders encourage to ensure our organisations are in the best place to respond? Um, I, I think governance is always your friend in dealing with almost any issue and um, uh, good governance is the best preventative action um, someone can put in place and what does that mean? Um, Strong effective planning for what you're going to do. Um, A key issue we identify regularly in that planning is um, people not being willing enough to look over the fence and seek advice from others, uh, uh, not willing to go to others who have lived through similar or, or the same experience and, and pick lessons up from them. So uh, being open um, in that planning process, putting in place effective performance monitoring um, so you know whether what you're doing is having an impact and you can identify risks as they emerge, uh, effective compliance processes, um, Again, it's part of your performance framework, but knowing whether the activity that you're undertaking is being conducted in the way that you expect it to undertake, the way that the government expects it to undertake or the way the parliament expects it to undertake within the framework, um, being clear about those type of things and doing that within an effective risk management, all of those things in effective risk management framework. Um, uh, They're the principles of or some of the key principles of good governance, but it's all a risk-based process. It's, uh, so being very clear about the risks that you ident- that are you face in implementing, delivering government service, being clear about the mitigation strategies, um, monitoring those things, it being an active part of your of your day-to-day operations. The you know the preventative actions they aren't new. They're the standard uh, areas that we identify in most of our audits where there is uh, where challenges develop through implementation. It's usually through not dealing with the basics. Uh, Angeline, to you, what, what advice would you have to Holly and other future leaders when it comes to taking this preventative action as it relates to uh, privacy and information management? I think at its core, one of the results of good preventative strategies is a a hardening and increased resilience against risk. And and Grant has called out the importance of governance in managing those risks. And from a, a privacy and access to information perspective, there's a couple of things that the law, in fact, requires of agencies to take that proactive preventative approach. So in terms of privacy, there are 
certain principles in privacy law that ask agencies to have in place reasonable steps to protect personal information from, from loss or for unlawful intrusion, for instance, uh, and also to have the systems and processes in place to deal with that, uh, including uh, very well-oiled systems of creating privacy impact assessments where new ways of handling personal information arise. And the more they're a well-oiled machine, the more they're able to be relied upon on in a crisis. Uh, what we've seen with the notifiable data breaches scheme that came into operation in February 2018 is that most data breaches do have um, a cyber element to them, but almost at the same rate, they, they include a human element. So that is individuals, this is across the economy, who might be tricked through phishing emails or, or other enticements to click on links and then to provide their credentials and become compromised in that way. So taking a, a proactive approach means not only the governance processes, but also right down to ensuring you've got the right training in place for your people as, as those who are at the coal front in terms of mitigating these emerging risks. Okay. And Michael, um, your advice to Holly in terms of this preventative action, getting in front of it? Um, well, Talk to the people who are going to be on at the on the end of the of the service uh, or program that you're delivering. Um, uh, one of the things that we as an ombudsman do is, as I mentioned before, we take complaints. Uh, but so do most agencies. Most agencies, particularly the big service delivery agencies, have pretty substantial uh, complaint handling functions. And sometimes complaints are confronting. Sometimes complaints are uncomfortable. Uh, but if you don't hear them, if you don't hear the people that are uh, dealing with you and the issues that they're grappling with, um, then you can always yeah, there's a there's a risk you're gonna uh, you're gonna make a, a mistake along the way. Uh, and, uh, and whether that's complaints after the fact or whether it's engaging with uh, potential users and customers and citizens uh, during the design phase uh, is the same principle. Okay. All right. Oh, yeah. So, sorry, Angeline, go on. David, if I could just add, um, one of the, the things that we have seen during the pandemic is, a, is an increase uh, of citizens requesting access to information under the Freedom of Information Act and a, a commensurate increase in requests for review of those decisions by my office uh, and, in, and also a number of uh, decisions uh, that haven't been processed during the, the, the correct timeframe under the FOI Act. Um, and taking a, a pragmatic view of that, there's a number of reasons why that might be the case in terms of the redeployment of, of staff within those agencies. But one of the very critical roles of the public service during this time is to document and be accountable for the actions taken, uh, often taken at speed and in different constructs than we've been used to. And as we come out of the pandemic, uh, it's right that citizens will want to understand the decision-making processes of government and that we can use that for reflection uh, and improvement into the future. So from a preventative perspective, I'd encourage all leaders in the APS to be looking at the kinds of information they've generated during this time and thinking about how they might proactively publish that for the benefit of the citizenry rather than requiring individuals to undertake that pull notion of, of drawing information from government. Let's get on the front foot and put it out proactively. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I was in a discussion not yesterday where um, someone in the public service gave exactly that advice to somebody on a, a conference call about get it right, get it early and get it out there as best as you possibly can. So uh, fascinating stuff. Okay, another question um, again from IPA Future Leader, this time Deanne Allen at the Attorney General's Department. And Grant, I'll start you off on this one as well, but come to all of you. Uh, there has been discussion over recent times about the creation of a federal anti-corruption agency. If this were to be established, how would it alter the role of each of your entities? So we'll come to each of you about that. Would it take away any functions from your existing roles or would it indeed complement your existing approach? So Grant, I'll, I'll throw that to you first. Um, I suppose I've been in the fortunate situation of being Auditor General in two jurisdictions, one of which had a corruption body and... Um, from that experience, I'd say it's complementary rather than taking away from a role. Um, audit officers really aren't um, investigatory bodies into corruption and fraud. Uh, and generally, when we identify that, we try and find the, the relevant investigatory body to hand it over to. Um, and the, the establishment of an anti-corruption body in the in the Commonwealth would simply make it easier to identify what that body was. So I, I don't see it as... Not going to change life for you too much. Not too much at all. What about for you, Angeline? Well, thanks, David. I agree with Grant that I think that uh, any corruption agency will complement the existing structures within the APS. Uh, from my perspective, uh, the, the FOI Act is one of the mechanisms by which information can be revealed around government decision making. And it's one of the safeguards in place to ensure that there's accountability for the way in which public servants and indeed ministers are exercising authority. So I see any uh, anti-corruption agency as being complementary to that. Um, there's also a role, I think, for integrity agencies ourselves um, who might have have such information revealed to us to have an opportunity then to refer that to any anti-corruption agency. So I think there'll be a duality in terms of the roles that might come to fruition uh, in that context. And Michael, from your point of view? Yeah, not a great deal to add. I agree with both Grant and Angeline. I'd just uh, also make the point that uh, in here in the ACT, often Commonwealth public servants uh, overlook the fact that things go on in the ACT that are comparable to what might occur at the Commonwealth level. Uh, it's not that long ago since uh, the ACT uh, Assembly and the ACT government created uh, an integrity commission here for the ACT. Um, and in our capacity as ACT Ombudsman, we refer things to them and backwards and forwards. Uh, there is a Human Rights Commission, there is an Auditor General, uh, there is a, a, an entity that oversees FOI and so on. Um, the key is designing, uh, or one of the keys is designing uh, any new entity's role in such a way uh, that that those cross-referrals uh, can work effectively uh, and that folks can work together in a, in a sensible way in their respective, uh, respective lanes. Okay. Um, another question from uh, Deanne uh, Allen, and it does go to a, an earlier answer that was given uh, by Angeline, but I will ask it again. A key element of oversight is ensuring transparency, but your organisations can report on some pretty complex topics. So how do you ensure that your publications are accessible and can be understood by the Australian public? So I'll throw to you first, Angeline. 
I think uh, accessibility is very important in terms of actually realising the objective of having information available uh, for the citizenship. Um, it's really imperative for us to be able to convey that in a way that's relatable for uh, those whom we regulate and for the broader Australian public. Um, I think that in, all in all, uh, many of us tend to work within legal frameworks and that can lead us down a particularly legalistic path. Um, we are doing work within my organisation uh, to make sure that the information that we put out is, is accessible as possible. But there's also the opportunity to use different mediums, uh, video uh, snippets, um, other multimedia tools that can help bring that to life. Um, at the same time, in terms of um, ensuring that we are uh, providing uh, sharing information within government as well. Uh, there's also an opportunity uh, for information sharing between regulators to be um, enhanced and built upon so that we can give a if you like, a, almost a, a seamless view of these, some of these complex issues to the Australian people. Okay. And Grant, from your point of view, how are you doing on, on your storytelling? How, how accessible is, is the work of, of the uh, Auditor-General? Um, it's hard to assess your own work. <laughs> uh, we try to make our reports as um, plain English as possible and accessible to the readers. We try to make conclusions and findings clear and unambiguous um, with respect to what uh, the audits uncover. Um, Have you taken up the opportunity yet or the challenge perhaps of creating multimedia content to be creating videos and podcasts and animations and graphics and, and other? Yeah, we do a bit of that. Um, but the substance of our work is audit reports and audit findings. So we, we try and provide, um, in some circumstances, accessible learnings from our work and matters like that. But with respect to complexity, the the key argument we get from the people we audit isn't so much that we're not clear enough, but we don't entail, include enough detail to explain why the things are the way they are, rather than, um, rather than that we're not clear about what the situation is. And um, there's a balance when you're reporting on performance between filling up your reports too much with the excuses for the performance versus being very clear about what the performance was. And um, that's sort of one of the key challenges that we have. Um, all activities occur in, a, in an environment. Um, how much of that environment do you need to describe in order to be clear about what's actually happened is, is an ongoing challenge for us with reports. Sure. And Michael, I know that this is something that has exercised your, your mind recently is, you know, how do you tell the story of the, of the work of the Ombudsman? So um, how would you mark yourself out of 10? Oh, it's always a work in progress. Um, uh, we are looking at ways in this this uh, COVID period where we can't get out and engage with stakeholders in the same way as we used to in a whole lot of different niche areas of our business, um, uh, where we're you know looking at uh, digital content and webinars and all that sort of sort of thing. Um, but more generally, uh, my reaction to this question is sometimes people will tell you that the work they're doing is terribly, terribly complex um, and terribly hard and how could you 
possibly understand it. But actually, the values that uh, uh, my agency is interested in that I think are common to uh, my colleagues on the panel today around fairness, around transparency, around openness, around the rule of law, around due process, all of these concepts that, that we seek to uphold in the, in the context of, of building confidence in administration and ensuring good administration for the citizenry, these are actually quite simple things. Um, they may be difficult to implement in a given setting. Uh, they may go wrong in one way or another. Um, but uh, I think there is a plain English story that can be told. And, and uh, uh, I'd invite people to look at uh, the reports on our website and see how we go. Welcome <laughs> okay. any feedback. All right. And there is one final question from Deanne, and this is to you, uh, Auditor General. You are halfway through your 10-year term as Auditor-General. What successes have you already had and what are you hoping to achieve with your next five years? Again, marking your own homework here. Yeah, (laughs) I don't think I'm going to mark my own homework. Um, I I would class as success um, the fact that the ANAO continues to undertake evidence-based work. does so independently and unbiased, in an unbiased manner. We report our work and our findings fearlessly. I don't know whether that's quite the right word, but uh, we do it in a way to to be very clear about what we find without um, and fairly. We always present all sides to an argument. We do those things, I think, very well. I think our work has impact. Um, all of it, I think all audit work has an impact both in terms of the direct um, leading to change but also the fact that we're around changes. Like all integrity bodies, the existence of them makes the world a better place as well. Um, I think some of the work we've done on uh, the implementation of the PGPA Act and driving better performance information has been important and continues to do so. So... Um, no, I think going okay. I think we're, I, I hope we're going okay. Um, only five years to go, so we'll see how it, how it turns out. Now, I'm I'm fortunate. I came into an organisation with a a very high quality team of people doing outstanding work, and you know that's that's that a great thing. Yeah. That helps a great deal. You yeah. know, we've got a very good organisation. Um, just to, to wrap it up, and I, I do want to go round to, to each of you to give you the opportunity just to reflect on this most recent period as a an extraordinary period um, as as a public servant. And perhaps to you, Angeline, first, um, you've been in the game for, for quite some time. This has been a remarkable period. Can you reflect on on this period as a public servant and how how you've undertaken your role and and how it made you feel, I suppose, you know, around the important work that you do? It has been a time when the importance of the work of integrity agencies has never been uh, more prominent. Uh, From my perspective, it's been a great privilege, uh, also a great responsibility to be uh, leading an organisation at a time when uh, the handling of personal information in particular has been uh, so central to government's response and also to businesses' response. Um, I think what I have taken from this time is our ability to provide tangible outcomes and benefits for 
individuals uh, when we all are united by a common purpose and the public interest. Um, my organisation's vision is to increase public trust and confidence in the protection of personal information handling and access to government-held information. And I think during this time, we've been able to realise some of the, the key foundational building blocks that are needed for that. Uh, and of course, when individuals have trust and confidence both in government decision-making and in the handling of their personal information, that opens up a number of flow-on effects, which are economic in terms of the trust in the digital economy, uh, the increased efficiency that can be gained by using personal information by government for service delivery purposes where there's that trust, and trust in the legitimacy of use of citizens' data for public purposes like health, safety and security measures. Uh, so I think it's a, a time of, of great learning a time for us to also uh, hopefully have an opportunity to reflect uh, and to be able to think about how we can bring some of these um, ways of responding into our future work. Okay. And Michael, to you, a, a personal reflection. Sure. Well, at the beginning of the crisis, uh, there were massive frontline agencies responding in real time to a obviously very present threat. My agency wasn't one of those. And, uh, and so you do have a moment where you go, well, what, what can an ombudsman usefully do at this point in time? But as the weeks and months have gone by, it struck me that the role of an ombudsman uh, and other integrity bodies is, is just all the more important because, in fact, there are hundreds of thousands of people uh, who've not previously been coming into contact with various kinds of Australian government services. There are all sorts of vulnerable folks uh, in, in the community dealing with, uh, dealing with government services and government programs that uh, that wasn't the case before. Mm. Um, and I think we've got a really uh, important and constructive role to play, uh, both with people in the public, but also with the agencies that we oversee, uh, to, to, to help ensure uh, that, uh, that all that works as well as it possibly can. Sure. And Grant, uh, finally to you, uh, that personal reflection about being a public servant during this time. Um, I think one of the, the challenges for integrity review agencies like ours is what, building on what Michael said about what the role is in this type of environment. And the, the fact is that um, the role of oversight is just as important or more important when you've got these type of activities going on um, than at any other time. The, and then determining how to go about it. And I think one of the things that has um, impressed me from our role has been the responsiveness of every entity to us in, um, in not trying to say that we shouldn't go and look at things now because they're too busy, uh, that it's inappropriate, would get in the way, that type of thing. All of the discussions that we've had have been um, sort of recognising the importance of oversight to the effective ongoing operations of the sector. And as I mentioned before, we've commenced four audits into COVID-related implementations and in every occasion the accountable authority for the entity has supported, if not encouraged, us to start that work early and, and get in and get, give them back some feedback on how things are going. I think that's um, impressive in terms of a the openness of the sector to oversight 
and something I think that people can be proud of of our public sector. Fantastic. Well, to you, Grant, uh, Angeline there in Sydney, and to Michael, thank you all for your service. Uh, and indeed, I, I think the point has been brilliantly made through this discussion today about the role of integrity as a foundation for trust. Um, and really, uh, government is going to play such a critical role in the lives of Australians, as Michael was saying before. People who have never been in touch or engaged with uh, government are going to be more so in the next five, ten years. And so that importance of integrity, uh, of transparency, uh, is just going to be so critically important. And so I thanks to each of you to really uh, outlining your agency's role and the work that you will play into the future in maintaining that trust with the Australian citizens. So thanks to each of you today. Our next program will feature David Fredericks, the Secretary of the Department of Industry, Science Energy and Resources, and Michelle Brunnages, the Secretary of the Department of Education, Skills and Employment. That podcast will also serve as the launch for Innovation Month uh, in July, which, no surprises, will be a virtual event this year. So, um, uh, look out for lots of that stuff. IPA is certainly very, very involved in uh, Innovation Month. And so uh, stay tuned for lots of activities during July. Uh, David and Michelle, during that podcast, we're going to focus on innovation, agility, skills, and how the public service can help drive innovation and productivity improvements across the APS, but also the, the critical influence that the APS will have in restoring confidence uh, in the Australian economy. It's been one of the big features of Work With Purpose is about how important it is that government engages with business in order to drive productivity improvements. So that's going to be a, a fantastic conversation. Uh, Work With Purpose is part of the GovComs podcast network, and if you would like to check check out the GovComs podcast. Please type that into your favourite podcast browser and it's sure to come up. And if you do happen to come across our social media promotion for Work With Purpose, please pass it along by sharing it. And if you are feeling particularly generous, perhaps a rating or a review, which will help to get the program discovered. But thanks again uh, to our guests today for coming in to talk to Work With Purpose. And thanks again to you, the audience, for coming back once again. We'll be back at the same time next week. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.